This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles this evening to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, we're looking tonight at verses 4 through 14. 4 really serves to conclude the previous section, which we looked at uh, last Sunday night, where the writer to the Hebrews speaks of the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ over the Old Testament prophets, how God spoke in various times, different ways by the prophets. But as he says in these last days, he has spoken to us not by a prophet, not by a servant, but by a son. And in this passage, the writer is um, showing the superiority of Jesus uh, not just over human prophets, but even over angels, these supernatural beings. And so let's, uh, let's begin our reading, actually get a little bit of a running start into the passage, uh, beginning in the middle of verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for the scriptures. and Thank you, Lord, for this passage tonight. We pray that you would guide us, guide our thinking as we study it, that uh, we would be accurate, that we would be faithful to your word. And, Father, that you would feed our souls with the word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. People have always been fascinated by angels. That's one reason that this passage was necessary. Because then, as now, people had a fascination 
with angels. Um, we see this certainly in our own day uh, by the writings that uh, you find on this whole subject of angels, uh, both uh, in terms of studies of what the Bible says, as well as uh, fictional accounts. You think of the uh, works of Peretti, this present darkness and so forth, that have to do with angels, works by C.S. Lewis and others. Um, certainly over the past number of years, TV shows that uh, either... Incidentally, or even as a main theme, deal with angels. Think of Highway to Heaven, shows like Touched by an Angel. Uh, and in film, even recently, um, a film this year by the name of Legion, uh, a fantasy slash horror film that curiously features Michael, the archangel Michael, coming to earth uh, to warn mankind that God's fed up with us and Strangely, Gabriel comes and, and is his opponent, and they fight, and and Gabriel winds up killing the, at least the human incarnation of of Michael. Uh, strange, I haven't seen it. I've just read about the movie and seen ads for it. Uh, but it just goes to show that this this fascination with angelic beings, the supernatural generally, is very real in their day, uh, in writings in antiquity as well as in our own. And the Bible does have a good deal to say about angels. You know, as you go through and look at various passages, there's a lot there. The Bible tells us that angels are created beings, that God created them as a class of beings. Sometimes you find this rather sentimentalized idea that we die and become angels. That's simply not the case. Angels are angels and humans are humans and one doesn't become the other. Uh, they are spiritual beings, even here in verse 14. They are ministering spirits, although apparently they can appear in human form. Uh, the movie Legion got it right, at least in, in that regard, in Scripture, where they do seem to appear in human form. Uh, they are personal beings. There are, There is, uh, the Scriptures record uh, in the book of Daniel and other places, an angel named Gabriel and an angel named Michael. Uh, they are personal, and they are finite. The omnis that we apply to the Lord do not apply to angels. They are not omnipresent. They are not present at all times and all places, the way God is, uh, with all of his being. They are not omnipotent. They may be powerful, but they are not all power. They are not omniscient. They are not all-knowing. Those things apply to God. They do not apply to angels, even though angels are spirits. They are finite. Uh, the scriptures obviously tell us that some are good, some are evil. Uh, it does seem to speak of a fall among the angels. Isaiah 14, referring to Babylon, does seem to speak a little bit more deeply than that, uh, as even some passages in the New Testament seem to indicate that there's more going on there than just the earthly kingdom of Babylon, but the rebellion and fall of Satan uh, against the Lord. The scriptures speak of the elect angels, not to elect in the sense that they would be redeemed. Angels are not redeemed, but elect in the sense that they remained unfallen. They did not rebel against the Lord. Scripture seems to indicate there's a large number of angels, whether it's Jesus referring to his father being able to send 12 legions of angels to his deliverance, uh, the visions and in, in, in revelation of vast numbers of angelic beings, um, a fixed number, Jesus refers to the angels by comparison when he says in the resurrection that we will not marry or be given in marriage, but will be like 
the angels, uh, the idea being that uh, they do not procreate, they do not create more angels, but it is a fixed number. Uh, the scriptures seem to speak of some sense of organization in the angelic realm. That speaks of cherubim, or cherubs, to use the English plural, cherubim being a Hebrew plural, uh, seraphim, two different categories or classes or ranks of angels, we don't know. Uh, Paul writes of principalities and powers, thrones and dominions, referring to powers in the spiritual realm, uh, certainly uh, in, in the, among the evil spirits. Um, so there does seem to be some sense of organization or, or classification or rank. What are their functions? Well, the scriptures tell us they, they praise God. They, as it says here, they serve as people. Sometimes they served as particular mediaries uh, between God and man before the work of Christ. Fallen angels um, serve to oppose God, to oppose his work, to oppose his people. One of the best treatments on that whole subject, of course, is C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, uh, seen from the perspective of hell. Uh, the difficulty in reading it, of course, is to remember that up is down, down is up, good is bad, bad is good, because it's all seen from the point of view of the devil, uh, or at least his demons. So some of their functions. So the Bible actually has a great deal to say about angels when you survey it and go through all of it. And then, as now, um, sometimes interest in angels borders on obsession, or at least a misplaced interest, sometimes even an idolatrous interest when it comes to praying to angels or looking to angels for particular protection or blessing that rightly should be sought from the Lord alone. And so that's one of the reasons that the writer to the Hebrews pins this rather lengthy section having to do with the superiority of Christ over angels and other places in Scripture uh, deal with this tendency to focus on angels rather than the Lord. Colossians, for example, Paul goes into that. But the writer of the Hebrews basically is saying to us this, because Christ is superior to the angels, we should give to him the glory and the attention that he is due. And so... Let's look at what he has to say uh, here in these passages. Uh, and it is a number of passages within the one passage. The writer quotes seven key Old Testament passages. He's quoting from the Septuagint, quoting from the old Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Sometimes if you compare what we have here with what you actually find in the Old Testament, there's some differences. One of the reasons for that is he's quoting from a Greek translation of it, whereas our Old Testaments are translated from the Hebrew uh, Old Testament, uh, which does introduce some different words, because in translation you're using different words. Obviously, as you read your English translation here, uh, you're reading different words than what Hebrews actually had originally, which are Greek words. Um, it says the same thing, essentially, but they are different words. So it would be like one quoting from one, one quoting from the other. But as we look at this, uh, basically the passage gives us three contrasts between Christ and the angels by which he sets forth the superiority of Jesus. The first contrast is this. Christ is superior to the angels in terms of his name. In terms of his name. We see this in verses 4 through 6. Uh, in verse 4, it says that Christ has become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. 
Now, it's easy to hear that and think Philippians, you know, he's given the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Um, certainly that could apply, but I think he reveals to us the name that he has here for him that is superior, and it is the name of Jesus being a son. In verse 5, he says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? That's a quotation from Psalm 2-7, you know, where the, 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 the nations rage against the Lord. And yet God in heaven just laughs. That's about how intimidated he is by the ragings and the plottings of the nations against him. It's that psalm. And in the middle of that psalm, in verse 7, it says that he says, today, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That the Lord has installed his ruler, that the nations can rage and plot all they want, but the Lord has installed his son as the king, as the ruler, and he's the one who's calling the shots, not the nations of this world. And then he quotes from another key passage in Scripture, or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, quoting from 2 Samuel 7, 14, uh, which you may know, uh, chapter 7, 2 Samuel 7, a chapter you should know, where David resolves to build a house for the Lord, and the Lord comes and says to David, no, but I will build a house for you, i.e. a dynasty for you, and you will never fail to have a descendant on the throne of Israel. What's in that context and that this verse occurs? I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Um, and again, when he brings the firstborn in the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. But these first two have to do with Jesus standing, that Jesus is the son of God. Now, we understand that in a couple of ways. One, we understand it in terms of his being, that as the Son, he is the second person of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's, he's God. He is uh, equal in power and glory with the other members of the Trinity. So we understand it in that way, but we also understand it in terms of function, we First, ontologically in terms of being, but second, economically in terms of his function, he is the incarnate son who, submitting himself to the will of the first person of the Trinity, his heavenly father, comes into this world, lives here, state of humiliation, suffers, dies, is raised on the third day, ascends to the father, gives his Holy Spirit to his church. So in terms of his function, he's also the son of God who accomplishes the work of redemption. So in his being, second person of the Trinity, but also in his incarnation, he is the son of the Father. Now, of the angels, they are never, at least individually, referred to as a a son of God, certainly not the son of God. And so that's the case that the writer here is making. In terms of his name, uh, he is the son of God. He is in a separate class. He's all by himself, apart from the angels. And for that reason... Verse 6 says, he is the object of the angel's worship. Verse 6, when he brings his, the firstborn, his son, into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And he's quoting there from Deuteronomy 32, 43. Let all God's angels worship him. You see, with this fascination for angels, or even this temptation to worship or pursue angels, the writer of the Hebrews say, is saying, look, Jesus is the Son. He himself 
is the object of the worship of the angels. They worship him. Therefore, you should worship him. And we see this any number of places in Scripture, perhaps best known as Isaiah 6, where the angels are worshiping, proclaiming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty around the throne. Well, John 12 tells us that it is Jesus who is there, around whom the angels are gathered, before whom they shield their eyes, the pre-incarnate Son that they are worshiping. It's in John 12. Now, other passages, of course, Luke 2, where the angels proclaim the birth of the Son. Uh, many passages, several passages in Revelation, especially early on. Uh, Revelation uh, verse 5, chapter 5, rather, beginning in verse 8. Revelation 5, uh, actually starting 11, a little farther on. I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying to him who sits on the throne, the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Four living creatures say amen. The elders fell down and worshiped. The angels join in this general adoration of the Lord Jesus, exalting the Lamb. And then in what I think is, is one of the more humorous passages in the Bible later in Revelation 19, um, which specifically counters any idea of worshiping angels or placing them on this pedestal in our minds or in our adoration focus of our prayers. Uh, Revelation 19, verse 9, The angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. And John says, Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. This angel is somewhat aghast as John falls before him to worship him. Understandable, given what we know of angels. But at the same time, the angel says, stop, don't do that. You you don't worship me. Worship God. I'm just a fellow servant of the Lord with you. And so Christ is superior to the angels as he is the Son of God, and himself as such is the object of the worship of the holy angels. Now, we also see as he goes on quoting these passages from the Old Testament, which you will recall for him was his Bible. And he's being very careful here to cite Scripture to back up what he is saying, just as you would, only he has the Old Testament available as his Bible. Uh, the second point he makes, not only is he superior in name, he's also superior in power, superior to the angels in power. Look at verse 7. The angels themselves are subject to God's power. Verse 7. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, his ministers a flame of fire. Quoting from Psalm 104, verse 4. Uh, He makes his angels winds, his ministers a flame of fire. They are subject to God's power. They are subject to God in their form. They are able to appear to humans as it suits God uh, for them to do so, to accomplish some purpose. Uh, 
But even in their form, even in their appearance, they are subject to God. Certainly they are subject to God in terms of their work. His angels winds, his ministers a flame of fire. He makes them what he wants them to be. He tells them what they are to do. The angels are subject to the power of God. The contrast is that the Son wields the power of God. Look at verse 8. But of the Son, he says... Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness, hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. That's Psalm 45, 6 and 7. The Son is not subject to God's power. He wields God's power. It's his throne. It is his scepter. A righteous rule. He hates wickedness. And he says, God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Uh, Now, both angels and the Son implement God's will. It's just that the angels serve and the Son rules. God has given all authority, all power, all dominion to his Son. So a big difference here that the Son wields God's power. He wields it in ruling over his creation. But he also wields it himself as the creator. Look at verse 10. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands. Now remember, he's citing these passages with reference to Jesus. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will Remain. He created it. They are the work of his hands. We're familiar with this, of course, from John 1. Nothing was made without him. But he not only created it, he will outlast it. Look at verse 11 and 12. They perish, but you remain. They'll all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. So Christ is superior to the angels in power. The angels are subject to God's power, but Jesus is the one who wields God's power. He is the the king. Now, obviously, God rules Trinity. But it's specifically through the Son, the second person of the Trinity, because of his accomplishing the work of salvation, that dominion is given. He, He is the scepter. He is the one who wields the scepter. He is the one who reigns, who through him is expressed the reign of God over creation, because he's the one through whom all things were created. And he's certainly the one through whom we were redeemed. Superior name, superior in power to the angels, superior to the angels, and finally in honor because of these things. Look at verse 13. The sun sits at the place of honor. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand? until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's, of course, Psalm 110, verse 1, familiar messianic psalm. To which of the angels did the Father ever say that? Here, you sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Which is where Jesus is now. He's finished the work, sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, reigning until every enemy is crushed under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished... Of course, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, is death. Well, 
That's an honor that the Son has, that he's been elevated to the right hand of the Father. He rules. He is in the place of honor. The angels, by contrast, are his servants. Verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? They are ministering servants. They serve at his pleasure. They do his bidding for our benefit. Uh, they serve They serve Christ. Some translations render it that they serve us, and they do indirectly, but ultimately they serve Christ for our benefit. I think the ESV is accurate there. They sent out to serve, to serve whom? To serve Christ for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation, namely us. But the angels do Christ's bidding for the well-being of his elect, his people. Now, that's one of those places where you sort of wish he had elaborated, uh, because it's it's a curious thing to ponder and to search out in light of Scripture what role angels might play in our protection, in our um, in our safety, and so forth. We don't know. Uh, certainly, they serve in some capacity in that way. Uh, ultimately, though, again, our confidence is not in angels. Our confidence is in the sovereign goodness of our God. However, he accomplishes his purposes for our well-being or for our success or whatever it might be. Ultimately, those things are in the hands of Christ, not first and foremost in the hands of angels. So angels are a fascinating subject, but we need to make sure that our interest in them does not cross over into obsession with them and certainly not into worship of them. The Bible teaches about them, and we do well to know what the Bible teaches about them, but we don't want to fall into the cultic practice of worshiping them or even the uh, sub-Christian practice of an obsession with them or trust in them. And in fact, Scripture, Colossians 2.18, clearly forbids the worship of angels. And uh, John himself received a personal rebuke from an angel when he tried it. Well, what are we to think about them? Well, we do need to be knowledgeable of them. We need to be aware of them. We do believe they exist, that they are, while spiritual, nevertheless real entities, real beings. Be respectful of them. They, too, are creations of the Lord. They, too, are servants of the Lord. Or, in the case of fallen uh, spirits, very powerful uh, and not to be tampered with and toyed with. But as the the writer to the Hebrews reminds us, our focus must be on Christ. Our trust must be in Christ. Our worship must be directed toward Christ, not the angels. The angels are but servants. Christ is the Son. Christ is the King. Christ is the honored Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for angels as a part of your creation. We thank you, Father, for how they serve you and how they do your bidding. Father, we would be like them in that respect. It is our desire to serve you, to serve you well, uh, to live according to your will. And Father, we do want to understand accurately and rightly what the Bible teaches about angels. But more than that, Father, we want to know more accurately and powerfully what the Bible teaches about Jesus Because, Father, we thank you that he is our redeemer. He is our creator. He is our king. He is our Lord. And so, Father, we give thanks to you for this passage, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.